Recent statistics from the CII have painted a clear picture that women's financial situation is often far worse than men's. For example, the average 65-year-old woman's pension pot is 38000 which is one-fifth of the average man's. 70% of women don't know how much pension they have, and there's still a 9% gap in full-time men's and women's pay, which is estimated to rise with age. We only need to look at the media to see this appearing all over the place. We've had the Me Too movement. Um, we've seen great strides in diversity at major award ceremonies. And uh, recently, the BBC has just paid another woman £700,000 in uh, lost earnings. So uh, well done, difficult women. But given these and many sort of headwinds that uh, the, the normal woman faces, the, the average woman faces, how can financial advisors help to tackle these issues and help their female clients become financially healthy? So with me, Simini Kuriaku, today are Emma Morgan. She's a portfolio manager for Morningstar Investment Management. I have Emma Hughes, a communications director at the Chartered Insurance Institute, and Helen Morrissey, pension specialist at Royal London. Colleagues, can I start with asking how wide really is the gender gap when it comes to the differences between men and women's finances? Um, Helena, I'm going to start with you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, the gap is is absolutely huge. I mean, a lot has been made of the gender pay gap, which I think tends to come in around 20%. But actually, when you look at the gap when it comes to particularly pensions wealth between the genders, is that that increases massively. I think I saw some research that put it somewhere around 40%, but then I've heard of much, much wider gaps even than that. Mm. And I think what's really, really interesting is that I was reading an auto-enrolment review recently that showed that the, the female participation in workplace pensions is growing rapidly which is fantastic news. But then there are lots of headwinds that women in particular face, which is what's blowing this enormous mm. gap in their personal finances. So first of all, you know, they're likely to spend a lot of time out of the workforce, mm. caring responsibilities, usually children maybe in their 30s, then maybe older relatives, maybe when they're in their 50s and 60s. When they do then return to work, it's often a part-time basis. And all of these things conspire to really blow a hole in women's financial resilience. Mm. And that really sort of leads into the gender pay gap as well. And that's something that I know Sean Fisher at the CII has been talking about, that if a gender pay gap persists, then uh, sort of pay um, disparity between men and women's finances and men and women's pensions in particular won't even start closing until 2100. Well, I'll be dead by then. But Emma uh, Hughes, can you talk a bit more? Well, that's the few factor in pensions. I mean, if you focus just on the gender pay gap alone, it is slowly closing. So in 2018, it was 17.8%, whereas in 2019, it was 17.3%. So there's progress, but it's very slow. And just on pay, um, it's not expected to close until 2050. I think as Helen pointed out, I think what's key is not just reporting on the pay gap, but really understanding what's driving it. Mm. And um, so back in 2016, the Chartered Insurance Institute established the Insuring Women's Futures Initiative, which was voluntary and market led and aimed at looking at ways to improve female financial resilience. And what it found was what kind of Helen touched on was that there are lots of root causes that are contributing to women's lack of financial resilience in 2020. 
And a lot of that lay in in deeply embedded social attitudes and a lag in legal and social care systems. Um, And as Helen touched on, you know, we've come a long way since male breadwinners and a woman's place being in the kitchen in 2020. Mm. But ultimately, there are still far fewer females in senior roles. And as she touched on, there are far more women in part-time positions because even though we now have shared parental leave and kind of greater policies in terms of shared care um, policies women are still taking on the bulk of responsibility for looking after children and um, elderly loved ones. Mm -hmm. Emma Morgan, what's Morningstar's stance on this? Morningstar, I think what we need to do is really focus on the positives and that the pay gap has reduced significantly Mm -hmm. in the UK, particularly if we look from the 1970s. And, you know, the figures that we see today, obviously that will, will improve as the pay gap closes and as the savings rate close. But I think what we really need to do is start educating women a little bit more, making them more comfortable about talking about uh, money and making sure they know how much they need before they retire. I mean, I saw some interesting um, stats in terms of uh, research done by Fidelity that said that um, 33% of women um, say they'd be financially ill-prepared if they got divorced. Mm. Um, And that rises for women that are between 35 and 45. And the average age for divorces is 43 in the country. So we really need to to focus on um, ensuring that women know how much they need and educating them um, there. And obviously, uh, you know, the gender pay gap, reducing that and um, ensuring uh, we can retain women and get them to the higher echelons of um, of companies, which seems to be the kind of key hurdle at the moment. Mm. I'm going to move a little bit off script because you touched on education. If you look at the investment world, particularly, there's so much investment jargon out there. It can be difficult for even someone who's very clued up in financial services to make sense of it. How far do you think the industry has got in terms of educating and educating women? And what more can we do to kind of get rid of some of this jargon? I think there's a there's a couple of things that we can do. So I think the industry is full of jargon. Mm-hmm. I think we need to focus more on goals-based investing. I think that's what women really want. And uh, we need to move away from this investment-led focus. So when you think about um, someone, Mary Smith, at her kitchen table, when she's thinking about how she's going to invest her money, is she really thinking about, I want a volatility between 5 to 7%? Or if I want... Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly what Mary wants. No, and mm. or, or is she thinking, I want to save for my college education. I want to buy a house in three years' time. So I think moving the industry more towards goals-based investing will really help. I think more women involved. Women, I have found, tend to talk less jargon generally. I also think greater technology within the industry will also help transparency and, and education. Absolutely. Well, Helen, the pensions industry is also known for its uh, wonderful jargon, sure accumulation, decumulation, uh, superannuation, fantastic words. Mm-hmm. No, I've, I mean, I'd really like to add to what Emma was saying there. So Roy London did some work with the Wisdom Council quite recently on why women um, don't invest. And what came out of it was genuinely quite surprising. So um Quite a lot of the research done in the past say, you know, women don't invest because they lack confidence and they are more risk averse than men. Whereas what came out of this research was was that women are neither of those things. They are CEOs of their own households. They do the day to day budgeting. You know, they're more than willing, you know, that they're not risk averse at all. What it came down to was that a lot of women don't feel that people like them 
invest. Mm. So investing just isn't on their radar. And when it comes to a pensions, um, you, you put a pensions lens on that, we don't say that we invest in a pension. We mm. say we save into a pension. And that has led to a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, among many people. This goes for men as well as as well as women as to what they're doing with a pension. And we actually asked the question. So I think every woman that took part in the research was a pension investor. Mm-hmm. We asked them if they were investors. The vast, vast majority of them said no. Interesting. And when we actually said, if you have a pension, you are an investor, their levels of interest ticked up markedly Mm. so i think we almost have to like peel it right back to the basics and address exactly what a pension is absolutely and that's obviously the job of a financial advisor in many cases particularly if they're advising a couple particularly if perhaps the man has been the main breadwinner and making most of the financial decisions Um, but it's also the woman's money too so how should financial advisors go about that particular angle emma i'm gonna emma uh, hughes i'm gonna direct this at you Basically, it comes back down to the fundamentals of financial advice, doesn't it, really? It's understanding the clients and what their needs are. Um, I mean, historically, one of the kind of criticisms that was levelled at the profession was that it was very male-dominated. But things are slowly changing. Um, So, like, for example, while recent FCA data showed that only one in five financial advisors is a woman... At the recent Personal Finance Society graduation, you can see the makeup of the professions changing. More than 30% of the graduates were women aged less than 37. So diversity within the profession is changing. But the kind of key part of financial advice is really that it's not just about reflecting the diversity of the clients that you serve. It's also about kind of really understanding the needs and what kind of is driving. So is the client just the male breadwinner or is it also the female is it also the wife is it also the uh, what conversations are they having it's important to make sure that whatever advice is given is suitable for the needs of not not just the person who's doing the bulk of speaking basically bringing both the couple into the conversation you you mentioned about uh, more women coming into the financial advice profession but wasn't it just last year we found out um, from I think it was Morningstar, wasn't it, that there are more women called Dave? Oh, there are sorry, more women called Dave. <laughs> I'd, I haven't met any women called Dave. Um, maybe that's the name of my next child, boy or girl. Um, but but there are more fund managers called Dave than there were women uh, running funds, and followed very closely by Andrews and Stevens. Um, <laughs> are we going to see any change from fund managers? Yeah, I think that's a very uh, depressing start. Um, Yeah, I think that um, Morningstar also did a study in the US a couple of years ago and it tends to be that what we are seeing is that women are coming into the fund management industry but they're tending to get the jobs in the newer sectors. Mm -hmm. So they tend to have more jobs in passives where you're following a kind of more top-down approach, a a more company-wide approach and they also tend to get more fund management roles in teams or be a co-manager and also interestingly as a multi-manager. So I think the positive thing is that women are getting more roles in the newer industries that aren't traditionally being dominated by men and I think actually one really interesting development could be ESG. Yeah, I was thinking that. And I think that will have um, a a few ramifications, really. Uh, What I've seen is that generally we've seen it's, it's a major focus now for for many of the many of the companies in the industry and you're seeing a lot of the heads of teams there come up as women mm-hmm. and i think for them it's just a little bit more interesting maybe or they see a more tangible output the good to the society i think also 
that may make women more interested in investing. And the other factor is you might have uh, more influence from shareholders also mm. um, looking at companies and their diversity initiatives. So I think ESG is actually a really positive and you could see um, a, a lot more women interested and engaged in the sector. But in terms of fund management, I think it continues to be challenging. You see industries like accounting and, mm. um, and, and solicitors and they have a much higher proportion of women in there. And I think also uh, the reason for that is there's much a much clearer career progression path than we see in the asset management industry where it's not so clear. You have the CFA, which is, you know, which is great, but there tends to be less structured graduate programmes than you see. And, and obviously the industry, I think, has a little bit of an image um, mm. issue mm. that isn't necessarily resonating with younger women um, and I, probably not helped by the financial crisis as well. Yeah, but hopefully things will move on. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned ESG because it was, golly, it must be about 12 years ago, um, ISIS as was, uh, not the uh, Islamic State, but the uh, former fund management group, formerly known as ISIS, um, had the, when they had the French Provident team, that the lady who headed the so-called Dirty Dozen, who were looking at ESG and uh, sustainability and engagement, uh, she was a woman and there were loads of women on that team, but I haven't heard anything uh, of them since uh, since everything changed so so maybe there's there's more room for development more room for for movement um, but coming back to the, the the pensions industry I mean that's still very largely run by men the men who run superannuation schemes and a lot of male trustees how are we doing in the pension world yeah I think it's I think it's a really interesting one so I remember um, years ago sitting in on a round table about why there aren't more women trustees and this was back when back when I was a journalist and I kind of expected that you know the audience would be 98 percent women and we I knew we would have a chat about you know what we could do and what was really surprising was that at least half of the audience was made up of men mm-hmm. and the level of engagement was absolutely massive because they recognised a lack of diversity themselves. Mm. They wanted to see more women putting themselves forward and what they wanted to do is to say what is it about our processes? Why aren't women putting themselves forward? And it kind of ends up being a real kind of um, exploration of well, what are the processes towards someone putting themselves forward as a trustee? Are they particularly women friendly? Is there a role for mentorship? I mean that could be something that mm-hmm. you know, happens in financial advisor um, firms, you know, could you know, old, you know, older whether it be men or women, be mentoring younger women and saying, you know, actually, this is something that's available to you. You know, financial advice, it's a great career for women. You know, there's a lot more flexibility in terms of, you know, the time that you sat behind the desk and, mm. and things like that. You know, I think mentorship could do a, could do a lot. Mm. Absolutely. And I've spoken to quite a few financial advisors, uh, male financial advisors, who are really positive about this. You know, they've implemented flexible working policies in their firms. Um, they, they've brought in job shares. Um, so that uh, women can have a, a dual, as you said, Emma, a dual caring responsibility at home for, for the children or for, for elderly parents. And um, they've said it works really well because it lends this air of flexibility. It's, it's really good for morale. It's good for clients when they come in as well. Um, because this, well, one particular IFA I'm thinking of, he, he said that he's got so many more women coming to him who've just been landed a big financial settlement on divorce and they want advice to know how to deal with it. And if they walk through the door of an office and even as a financial advisor is a is a bloke, to have a paraplanner there who's a woman or to have a an office assistant who are able to talk with you and, and present a friendly face, it makes it so much less daunting 
um, for a woman who doesn't know anything about finance to come into an office and feel that she's got this really sort of safe, flexible, happy, you know, workplace that she's that she's entering into. I mean, obviously, that leads us on quite nicely to, to sort of looking at women and wealth. The great wealth transfer isn't just for millennials, is it? It's also for uh, for women. We are we are meant to be very rich. Late on, oh, no one's told me this, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, women are meant to be the breadwinners of the future. Emma, what's the CII's take on this? How do we advise these wealthy women? Well, I think it's important for both kind of providers and financial advisors to recognise that women's position and economic status has changed considerably over the last century. And I think that has created both opportunities and challenges for the profession. It's important to understand the ways in which women's lives have changed and how to engage with them at different stages. So rather than the traditional stages of you buy a house, you have children, you lives have now followed lots of different shapes. And it's important to recognise at which points to kind of engage with them. So part of the challenge for product providers and financial advisors is recognising the changes in the ways we work, love, live and age since the 1950s and recognise that there's been lots of withdrawals of financial protections that were afforded to Mm. previous generations. So the financial protections that you had through marriages that simply um, had a far far more people who stayed together until death do they part, Um, the demise of final salary pensions, the way social care has changed. So those create lots of challenges for um, women and men in this day and age. Increasingly, the onus on looking after you falls on your own shoulders and very few um, people will come to help you. So I think it's important to recognise that the removal of the safety nets of the past mean you've got to engage with women in different ways and really make sure that they're aware that, you know, the financial futures that their mothers and their grandmothers have simply do not apply to them. But as you point out, there's lots of opportunities within Mm. that. It's just making sure that women feel that this is a profession with which they can engage and that will leave them financially better off by doing so. If mm. I could just add something yeah. to that as well. So I've seen kind of, I've seen research that, that shows that, you know, a lot of spouses and inheriting children will fire the advisor. Um, once mm. the father has passed away because they want somebody who resonates with them. So if there's no existing relationship between that advisor and the, the surviving spouse or the inheriting children, um, you know, there's a chance there that they may well not be advising those people going forward. So I think there's a lot to be said that, you know, even if the man does happen to have been your client to begin with, you know, once they've got married, there's a lot to be said for actually saying we we advise you as a family, mm. not just as an individual. Because as you say, all kinds of other issues will come up. So it might be a case of, you know, the, the man is very wealthy, but it's also, it's also saying to the woman, well, you know, what structures do you have in place, you know, should the worst happen? Yeah. To make sure that you're well prepared and you can build up a rapport with somebody, um, you know, getting the children involved, you know, maybe um, as people start to get older, you know, just in case people aren't able to look after their finances anymore, yeah, sure. then there's somebody there that you can go to. And there's a there's a mutual respect, rapport and relationship there that continues. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think as you kind of lent on earlier, I, the important bit is financial advisor is the kind of profession where you can thrive regardless of gender. The most important bit of the profession is really um, understanding people and helping make them feel empowered. And if you as the husband are intending to pass on your wealth to your wife, it's important to involve these people in the process. 
and make sure that they kind of understand what their needs are, what their aims are, what the barriers are to overcome. And what, most importantly, to empower them to know what action they can take to achieve their goals. Because mm-hmm. I was reading some case studies um, from female financial advisors, actually, um, about a week or so ago. And it was exactly that situation that Emma's just put forward. Um, even if it wasn't the woman you know, herself kind of pushing forward to say, I, I want to get to know you better and I want you to help advise me too. It was often the husband saying... I want my wife and my family should the worst happen to Mm -hmm. me. I want to know that she's going to be well taken care of. So we are going to be advised as a couple or as a family from now on. Yeah. And I think it's also important for women to have investment conversations with um, their financial advisor because women are going to want to invest. I mean, I've got a bank account that my husband doesn't know about. Well, not that he'll listen to this podcast, but uh, I hope not. Um, we've also both got 14 times death and service benefits, so uh, I often get him to fix the aerial on the roof. Um, <laughs> just saying, you know, we always need a, a little bit of help with our investment strategy. But um, if I can come back to, to, to Morningstar, I mean, do we know sort of how much sort of wealth is being put into the economy or being put into the investment world from women? Or how, how does the investment management industry react to these sort of newly wealthy or financially empowered women? Yes, so I think that women need what a lot of people need in the industry, which is, you know, products that are really low cost. I certainly don't think we need something wrapped in pink and flowers Mm. and then the cost isn't suitable. So I think women need what everyone, all investors need, which is low cost products. Um, I think we also need transparency and that links back to the comments about jargon earlier Mm. on. So we want simple, women tend to want more information and simple and easy to understand. So and also more visibility in terms of our costs because it continues to be very difficult to understand exactly how much we're paying. Um, I think we also need great technology and women tend to actually embrace um, Mm. technology as well. And then I think the the fourth thing is we need to focus more on goals-based. What do people really want? And that will also help women engage more. So in many ways, you know, these these are aspects that, all investors need, not just women. Mm. There are certain factors that, w- that we've spoken about for women, but as an industry as a whole, these are things we still need to make mm. um, significant progress on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've got quite a lot of friends who are teachers and doctors and some even consultants. You know, they're very brainy people. When it comes to money, they have no clue. You know, you ask them what a passive fund is, they'd have no idea what a passive fund Maybe it's a fund that's just not very physically aggressive to you. So, I mean, this is the sort of jargon that we're so used to talking about in the industry, but which can be really off-putting, particularly for women who've just divorced or inherited something and suddenly they're coming face-to-face with uh, advice for the first time. Um, so, So if we sort of move on and then look at financial advice again, how do we uh, go about advising women and how do we encourage financial advisors to think about diversity and inclusion without it making it seem like we're browbeating them. I mean, yeah, we, we can talk about diversity and inclusion until the cows come home, but really it has to be practical. It has to help their business um, because their sustainability is important for all of the UK because without financial advisors, so many people would have a worse financial outcome um, in the end. So how do we sort of, how does this become part of an IFA's business process? I think it's important to recognise that this isn't just about making women richer over the sense of men. It's about improving everyone's lives and better understanding each other. Um, I think it's about... um, So one of the great things about ensuring women's futures was that while it identified lots of ways that women are financially penalised, 
it basically found very rare... What was it? It wasn't a case that anyone was deliberately setting out to penalise women compared to men. It was often by accident. Um, Part of the problem is really legal and regulatory systems, basically, that establish the foundations of our culture and social attitude have failed to reflect the equal rights that women are entitled to. So, for example, um, one of the things that Ensuring Women's Futures pushed for was the use of gender-fair and inclusive language by the government and regulators to help reduce gender stereotyping, promote social change and contribute to achieving gender equality. There are lots of kind of examples of where it's fallen down in recent years. So, for example, recent changes such as the means testing of child benefit and the impact this has on women's state pension entitlements, an example of a gender imbalance that would not have happened if there had been kind of gender fair and kind of gender disaggregated data mm. that would have played into that decision. Um, so it's kind of very important that kind of the rules and the profession's policies aren't based on gender bias data and language. In terms of kind of improving diversity and inclusion in financial advice, that is happening. I think increasingly it is recognised as a profession where you can thrive regardless of your gender. It's a profession basically where um, it's vital to know the client So part of that is understanding every client that you may face. So as a profession, it's important to understand the diversity of the um, population in 2020 and the ways to include them and engage them and empower them to take charge of their finances. That's excellent. We've actually run out of time and we could talk about this um, so much more. For more news about gender and diversity and inclusion, please visit ftadvisor.com or check out Financial Advisor. Um, But it just behoves me now to say thank you to our expert panel, to Emma Hughes, Emma Morgan, and to Helen Morrissey. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. And I hope that we can have another debate like this soon. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.